Genesis 45. Continue this series on the life of Joseph. Have you enjoyed it? Revelation and reconciliation. The Bible says, do not become, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Repay no one for evil. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You have heard that it was said, Jesus said. You shall not love, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Okay, to summarize those texts. That is to say, take in the cursing, the hatred, the mistreatment, the disloyalty. And turn all the noxious displays thereof into life-giving expressions of love, kindness, and grace. Theoretically, that sounds great. It sounds benevolent. It even sounds liberating. But, but how do we truly overcome the crippling effect of bitter Resentment. How are we to respond when we're spitefully betrayed, deceived, and forsaken? Well, we're shown through the life of Joseph. In three parts this morning, we're going to get right into this. Outline for you. In it, we see the revelation of identity, the revelation of theology, in the revelation of reconciliation. The revelation of identity, theology, and reconciliation. Now, if you haven't been with us, and you're not familiar with this story, quickly, 22 years prior to what you just heard read, there's a man named Jacob who has 12 sons. His favorite son is Joseph. He provides his favorite son an ornamented robe, the robe of many colors, representing authority, favoritism. And 10 of those 12 sons hated Joseph, despised their father for showing favor to Joseph and wanted to eliminate Joseph. So as they're out, tending to their flocks and their herds, Jacob says to his favorite son, Joseph, go see how your brothers are faring. See how they are. So he goes by faith. As his father commanded, he goes. And as the brothers see him from afar, they say, oh, here comes the dreamer. Now, also in this account, God has granted this young lad to have dreams that declare the future will and purpose of God. And in one of those dreams, he says, hey, bros, guess what? Basically, to summarize, one day you're all going to be bowing down to me. So as he goes out to look for him, they see him from afar. He says, oh, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. Reuben says, nah, let's not kill him. 
And as Reuben is off somewhere tending to the flocks, it's, it's Judah's idea as they see a caravan of uh, Ishmaelite slave traders coming. He says, oh, let's sell him. Let's make, him, make a little money. Let's sell him. They sell him. First, they throw him in a pit. He cries out for mercy. They show him none. They pull him out of the pit. They sell him to the Ishmaelite slave traders who were en route to Egypt. And he sold off to an Egyptian leader by the name of Potiphar. He lives in Potiphar's house, serves in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife has the hots for him because he's good-looking in appearance and in stature. He says no. He's falsely accused, thrown into prison. He interprets the dreams of some fellow inmates. They forget who he is. He's left in prison. And eventually, Pharaoh, the leader of the most powerful nation on the earth, at that time has dreams of great famine. He doesn't know what they mean, but it's famine that's going to destroy the land. So interpreting the dream and then preparing a plan, Joseph says, hey, seven years of fam- seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. I got a plan. Here is the plan. We store up for the first seven so we can survive the last. So he's elevated. He's exalted to the second most powerful position in all of Egypt, just under Pharaoh. During the famine, these brothers are forced to go to Egypt. They have no idea what happened to their brother. He's the second most powerful man in the world. They have to stand before the man. He recognizes them. They don't know who he is. And through a number of events, they're sent back home. They come back. They need more grain. He keeps one brother. It's collateral. They come back. So all this is going on. And then he sets them up because he wants to test their heart to see if these are repentant men. So he sets them up. There's this one last test. That he plants a silver cup in the, in the uh, saddle pouch of the youngest, Benjamin. He sends... Joseph sends his steward after the brothers and says, why would you treat the man who treated you so well like this and steal his cup of divination? And they bring him back and they stand before him. And he says, look, your guilty little brother, he stays with me. You can all go. And then they plead for his life. And Judah steps up. And Judah says, sir, please, my father, my father, my father, his heart will be broken. He'll die if he loses another son. That's where we are. (laughs) Now, their brother is going to reveal himself to them. In case you haven't been with us. Verse 1, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. Then Joseph could not. Then when? Then when? Then on the heels of what occurred just prior to that that we looked at last week. Chapter 44. That is Judah's emotional plea for Benjamin. That he not hold him captive, but that he let him go. So he gives this heart-wrenching speech. That their father be spared any more trauma, which reveals true confession, genuine repentance, and remorse over their own sin, along with a merciful heart shown towards their father. Signs of true repentance. He he even confessed his genuine concern for their little brother Benjamin who was also the other favored son of their father. 
the, the brothers are ready to become slaves in Egypt at this point. They're ready to stand in his place so as to not harm their father yet again. They've caused this man plenty of pain in 30 years, let alone 22. So Joseph, at this point, hearing all this, he's unable to contain himself. This isn't the first time. He's broken down three times in the account. Back in chapter 42, when they first arrive, and he listens to them talk to one another. We're guilty of the blood of our brother Joseph years ago, and he breaks down. That's the first time. The second time is on their next trip up with Benjamin. When he sees little Benjamin, he breaks down again, and then he goes and washes up and comes back. And this time he orders everyone out, with the exception of the brothers, and he weeps aloud. He cried, notice, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud. So that the Egyptians even heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. Remember back in chapter 41? Okay, this is very significant. Back in chapter 41, here's Joseph. He's been there for a a number of years. He's given an Egyptian name, Egyptian garb, Egyptian power, an Egyptian wife. And they have children. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Remember that? He may have forgotten his hardship, but he hasn't forgotten his father's house. This is 22 years of bottled up emotion. He demands everyone in the house to be dismissed, not because he's embarrassed, as the second most powerful man in Egypt, but in order to secure privacy for he and his brothers. This is an intimate ordeal. This is how God deals with repentant sinners. Privately. Intimately. The stage is set for Joseph to reveal himself. In one of the most ironic episodes in all of history, The man whom these brothers had tried to kill 22 years earlier is now their savior. Joseph's revelation, his his revelation here, was not only a surprise to these brothers, but it was also a surprise to the Egyptians in the house. Nobody knew about this. All along, with the exception... Of Joseph, And this is very significant as well. Because holding on to this secret was not only for the sake of testing these brothers as he had up to this point, but it was also to protect them. Joseph, the prince of Egypt, the one who rightly interpreted the troubled, the troubled dreams of Pharaoh the one who implements the plan to spare the most powerful nation in the world, the savior, if you will, of the land, if word leaked out that these men, that these brothers were murderous kidnappers, the one who at one time harmed zaphnath Paneah, that's Joseph's Egyptian name, 
If they found that out, you know what that would equal? Ten headless men. That's what. So the identification of Joseph is the identification of these men. So the revelation of his identity reveals theirs. So he's protected them up to this point. Now, had Joseph had vengeance in his heart for his brothers in the first place? And if he wanted to keep his hands clean of their blood, all he had to do was recite just once what these brothers did 22 years ago. But his concern here is for their well-being. It's for their protection. So what caused him to tremble with tears? What caused within his heart excitement at the prospect of reconciliation with these brothers? What's the reason behind it all? And there are two reasons in this passage revealed to us. One is circumstantial. Okay, one is circumstantial and the other is foundational. So let's look at the circumstantial reason first. The immediate reason is the changed hearts of the brothers. It's pretty obvious. I mean, he had witnessed firsthand the difference that God's grace has made in the lives of these men. Many events up to this point, many months. He listens to Judah that we looked at last week, and Judah's speech had an enormous impact on Joseph. His plea on behalf of his father caused Joseph to lose control of his emotions. He's rattled, he's shaken. He clearly realizes how much his brothers have changed since that day back in Dothan when they threw him in a dried-out water cistern. They're not the same. So being ready and willing as they are at this point to, to, to pay the price in order to prevent any more grief to be laid upon their father, Joseph's deeply moved. Verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, look at this, I'm Joseph. (laughs) Is my father still alive? Brothers, brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So his first explanation is received with dumbstruck unbelief, terror. This is quivering terror, beloved. They're shaking in their sandals. This is drained faces and weak legs right here. Dismayed at his presence. They're paralyzed. They're traumatized. They're first traumatized. You know why? He speaks to them in their native tongue. How do we know that? Because Joseph just ordered everyone out of the room, and up until this point, he's been speaking by way of an interpreter. Nobody's there. He says, I'm Joseph, your brother. They've been talking among themselves the entire time, thinking he doesn't know what they're saying. That'd scare you. So there they stand, in other words, fully exposed before the most powerful man in Egypt. Thought he was the second most powerful. He was delegated all power and authority from Pharaoh. Notice the very next thing he says, is my father still alive? Because you're so intuitive and tuned in, you're asking, he's already asked that question. 
He's already been given an answer to that question. Judah just gave a speech mentioning their father 15 times and pleaded that their father's gray hair not go down to Sheol, right? But Joseph's question here, is my father still alive? This is an example of how the idea of life and living is communicated in the Old Testament. He's not inquiring whether or not his father's merely breathing. The question has to do with the health and well-being of his father. Is he alive and well? Does his father at present recognize them? Is he sane or senile, in other words? Does dad still have all of his faculties? Does he know who you all are? He wants to know if his daddy's going to recognize him after all these years. Is dad going to be able to look into my eyes and see his long lost son? That's what he wants to know. And is his father strong enough to make a journey down for the sake of a reunion? How's dad? Is he alive and well? Well, they're paralyzed. They can't even speak. So, verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. Imagine this. Come near. They came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. So they must have been dismayed by the fact that they've been looking at this man in the face on numerous occasions and never recognized him as their own brother. But then again, he was 17 when he was sold off, and here he's 40. For some of us, a lot of change takes place. (laughs) Not for all of us, but for some of us. Now, just in case, just in case there was any doubt in their minds as to whether or not this was really Joseph, notice what he says. I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Oh, because other than 10 of these 11 brothers, there's only one other individual in the entire world who knows about Joseph who was sold into Egypt, and it was Joseph. That's it. This is a well-kept secret. Benjamin didn't know. So the immediate or circumstantial cause of Joseph's emotional breakdown was indeed the transformation of these brothers by the move of God's grace on their lives. No one changes like this, but by the grace of God in their lives. You don't believe, but by the grace of God in your life, period. And if you think otherwise, you need to come to Sunday school and learn otherwise. (laughs) Grace alone. You, you, You gave nothing to God to cooperate with him in saving you. Nothing, including the faith that you have, which is a gift. Because if you think you do, then you can boast, amen? What can we do? Can anyone boast? Can any man boast? No, no man can boast. It's grace. 
So even before this climactic moment of, of repentance and revelation of his identity, we witness the heart of Joseph beginning to change, beginning to soften for these brothers. Okay, That's the immediate cause, beloved, but that's not the foundational cause. That's not the ultimate source of absent resentment and affectionate remembrance of his father's household. The foundational cause of such forgiveness and deep affection is shown by way of Joseph's theology. His theology, point two. And it's revealed in his acknowledgement and acceptance of God's providence. Look at verse 4. He said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be dismayed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth. Who sent him? And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God sent me here. You know, oftentimes, beloved, we think of God's providence, his predestination, his elective purposes, is is high or mysterious doctrine that is best left to the theologian. And that is absolutely incorrect. It is precisely the doctrine of God's providence, according to his sovereignty, that enables all of us sometimes just to be able to put one foot in front of another on any given day. (laughs) Verse 5, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me ahead of you over and over again. Joseph emphasizes this truth. So not only did did his deep-rooted theology and the providence of God keep him from going cuckoo through all of this, but it's also expressed in order to comfort his brothers who were racked with guilt. That's what God does for you. Everything that Joseph had said and done thus far was designed to cultivate repentance within these brothers, which was already there, by the way, being worked in and up and out by God. Joseph was just an instrument to manifest what God was doing. So at this point, he doesn't have to screw any more harder on these men. No need to... to, to turn the knobs or the screws down upon them and and cause any more pain. God's already working it out of them. Good example for us, amen? So he points here not to their misdeeds, he points not to their wickedness, but again to the overriding providence of God at work. And not merely the providence of God here, beloved, not merely God's providence, but the wisdom of God's providence. The wisdom of it. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Notice the emphatic nature of that statement. It was not you. No Arminian could possibly say that. So instead, some people reason, 
you know, all opposition in life has to do with Satan hiding behind some bush somewhere. I have friends who think that we who believe in the sovereignty of of God over all people's places and things, they think, we think, that God just arbitrarily ordains sin and evil. But my friends, let me tell you this. God is not arbitrary. He doesn't work in random fashion. He is sovereignly purposeful. So the revelation of Joseph's theology is not abstract theory. This is not dualism, in other words, as though Satan is God's evil counterpart. No, he's a pawn in the hand of God, used by God for the glory of God. Let's make sure we have our theology right, amen? That comes out of the Bible. Theology is very practical. Theology is incredibly relevant. We've had people come, like some of you who've been visiting for three, four, five, six weeks. They come and they last two months. And some complain to others, the preaching's too doctrinal. It's too theological. Only to trade it in for the pap and dribble that says, I'm looking for preaching that is more practical, with more direct application. You know, three steps to a happier life here and now. Let me tell you this, when trouble hits, when adversity strikes, and all life seems to be out of control, the shallowness of a shiny, happy theology that says three steps to a happier Christian life isn't going to help you at all. Not at all. Deep-rooted theology keeps you anchored, not down here, but up there, upward anchoring to be theologically and doctrinally anchored upward to heaven. So we're anchored not to stand still, but to move ahead in spite of all this opposition, all this trouble, all this pain, all the uncertainty, all the trials, all the temptations. Because our anchor is sure, it cannot break, it's steadfast, it cannot slip. You know, no earthly emotion-dropped anchor of spiritual sensationalism can provide this kind of security. Please know this, beloved. It was Joseph's theology that kept him anchored in sanity, friends. If you've been here, you see. You've seen what's gone on in this family. I got a phone call about my own extended family relatives back east and I'm like my goodness it's all relative problems sin is all relative ramifications of it it's all relative meaning relative meaning you might not be going through the same thing but you can understand something of it because you understand something of the sting of the circumstance amen That's what I mean by relative. 
It's enabled him to endure 22 years from a dried up cistern in Dothan, thrown into it, pulled out of it, given to a slave of, of, of uh, a caravan of slave traders, put into Egyptian service, falsely accused, 13 years in a ju- dungeon. And the reason why he's able to not have fierce hatred towards his brother is because of his theology. He's resting in this, the providence of God. God sent me here. He didn't understand that when he was 17, friends. Right? You may not understand it today. But by God's grace and the faith that he gives you to persevere, you'll understand more of it perhaps in the years to come. Perhaps. Maybe not till you go home to be with him. Now, a lot of people look at this and they say, yeah, I understand God permits such sins and events. He permits it. Okay? As though God is looking like, oh, man, I didn't see that coming. Whew, that's evil. I'm going to permit that to happen. Wrong theology. Wrong. On the contrary, beloved, the sinful actions of men from Adam's first rebellion to the sins of omission and commission that you and I commit every day are not outside the providence of God, but inside. For if they were not, God could not be in control. Does he excuse your sin then? No. No. Psalm 76.10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. So in his wise providence, God sets limits on the destructive power of sin and uses man's misdeeds to accomplish his own purpose. Always has, always will. So when considered from the perspective of eternity, what Joseph said about the ungodly actions of his older brothers might be said of all human sins. And that's what he says in chapter 50, verse 20. What you meant, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And he says here in verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Look at Psalm 105, 16. When he summoned a famine, God summoned the famine. On the land and broke all supply of bread, he, God, had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So as such, as such, Joseph shows shows no resentment towards his brothers, no resentment towards the forgetful cupbearer that left him in prison for those years, no resentment towards Potiphar's wife who falsely accused him of rape, and no resentment towards the Ishmael slave traders who took him down there in the first place. Wow. Whoa. Not me, but by the grace of God. It has to be the grace of God. I'd be ripping heads off. I'm telling you the truth. Grace. Because Joseph understands nothing happens that is defiant to the providential purposes of God. Nothing in this universe, friends. Why do you yell? Oh, because this is so true. It is, it is passion. I'm not yelling. This is preaching. This is what preaching is. It's just lively preaching. I could lecture. That would be boring. 
because he understands that nothing <laughs> ever happens that is defiant to the providential purpose of God. So people ask this question, why does God choose to use sinful men to carry out his decree? You know, some professors will say there's no such thing as a stupid question. Yes, there is. <laughs> and if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, that's a stupid question. Why? Because there's no sinless men to use. That's why. Right? Don't ever ask that question. Why does God use sinless men to carry out his preordained will? Because that's all there is. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All means all. Witness. Man alive. So everything God does in accomplishing his sovereign decree involves men and their sinful actions. Everything. Make no mistake, by the way. Joseph doesn't deny or ignore their sin. God's sovereign purpose in providential will doesn't excuse men of their sins. And let me add to that, God doesn't make man sin because he's sovereign. Okay, get that? They simply easily sin. Okay, God acts sovereignly according to his nature. Men act freely according to their nature. In their nature, sinful. And the result is God's perfectly decreed will being fulfilled. That's the result. When Peter preached at Pentecost, he said, men of Israel, hear these words. Beloved people of Pacific Hope Church, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There's the sovereign side. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Revelation tells us that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the earth. Now, the Joseph narrative, as we've been looking at this, is full of human interest, but we cannot forget its role in, the, in, in terms of the purpose of Genesis itself. Joseph himself provides the answer when he discloses his identity here. Verse 5, 7, and 9. God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. God has made me Lord over all Egypt. So he's, he's, he's referring to something here much more than preserving them from starvation, beloved. Much more. This goes back to the promise of Genesis 3, a promise that was given by God to Satan. Look at this. Because you have done this, serpent, Satan. Cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. Notice this. I will put enmity between you and this woman, Eve. Between you and the woman. And between your offspring, unbelievers, and her offspring, believers, the one who will come will eventually bruise your head, but in the process, you will bruise his heel. Who's that? Who's the seed? That's Jesus. 
That's Jesus. And all along the way of this promised line, it's threatened over and over again. But God is preserving his remnant. There was Noah, saved from a flood. There was Abraham, saved from paganism. There was Lot, spared and saved from Sodom. Jacob was saved from Esau. Jacob's family family is, is saved from starvation. So Genesis is a book of salvation stories leading to one great grand salvation story. The seed of Genesis 3 for sinful mankind, which provides ultimate reconciliation. Notice the reconciliation here in this family, which is just a snapshot of reconciliation between God and sinners like us. Verse 13. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry, bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed his brothers, all of them, and wept upon them. After this, after that, his brothers talked with him. Wow, imagine that conversation. What were you guys thinking when you threw me in the pit? Now he says to him, go tell dad about my glory. Go tell dad about my rule and reign here in Egypt. Is this pride? No. No. He wants his father to remember God's revelation in the dream 22 years ago. That what God said has come to pass. Remember in his second dream? Hey, bros, I dreamed that the sun, the moon, and 11 stars are going to be bowing down to me. Sun represents, S-U-N, represents Jacob, his father, the moon, his wife, Joseph's stepmom, and 11 stars, that's the other 11 brothers all bowing down. And they've all bowed down to him thus far, and so will dad and everybody else when they come. What God said has come to pass in an amazing way. Make sure you tell dad this, because there's no way he's going to believe this. Right? Who would believe this? So while Joseph and his brothers are getting reacquainted here, Pharaoh, he gets word of all this and gets busy making all these plans. And here again, this is Pharaoh, an instrument of God's grace. This is amazing. Throughout Israel history, throughout their history, great earthly rulers were moved by God to be friends rather than persecutors. See Pharaoh here, Cyrus of Persia, remember him? Artaxerxes, who assisted in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem much later on, much a long time after this. They're given abundance here. Okay, now, because we're running out of time. Verse 22, another one of the poignant verses of this passage. Notice. Let me get back there. Verse 22. So they're all getting ready to go. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave... 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. You see, he sends them back to Canaan with what? Garments. Garments, outer garments. The one who was stripped of his fabulous robe of many colors many years ago is now their clothier. He's stripped and sold off. He spares them, he saves them, and he cloaks them. 
in garments that, that are perhaps made of Egyptian fine linen, outer robes of fine linen, from the one they had taken the coat of many, many colors, colors, favored of their father, the favored one. See, this is the heart of a man gripped by the grace of God. Trusting in the providence of God. Verse 24. Notice this. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said, Do not quarrel on the way, boys. <laughs> Joseph knows these boys well. These are all older brothers as well. See, Joseph knows that these brothers are going to have to explain to dad about Joseph. Not, that just, not the fact that he's alive, but why all these years they thought he was dead. So the long trip back would provide opportunity for some self-justification and some finger-pointing. Amen? Reuben, he might have been tempted to say, hey, just remember, fellas, when you threw him in the pit, I wasn't even there. I was off tending to the flocks. And I told you not to do it in the first place, so I have nothing to do with this. And then on the other hand, they could have said, you know what, Jude, it was your, it was your idea to sell him, so you need to explain to Dad when we get down there. Right? For the first time in decades, these brothers are at peace with one another. And Joseph says, let nothing trouble this accord. We would all love it. That as soon as reconciliation between us and God takes place, that all of us, you know, we, we, we're part of the church now. We're, we're all together. We're brothers and sisters and now that reconciliation is made, there's no, no possible ability for any jealousy or envy or resentment or unforgiveness to exist within the body of Christ. Not so. This is a call for us to this day. You see, in other words, we, the body of Christ, must consistently fight for unity. Because you're prone towards disunity. Because we still struggle with our flesh. This person's jealous of that person. This person's envious of this person. This person didn't say hi, didn't say hi quick enough. I don't like the way they said hi. They're forced to say hi. Maybe they don't like me. Maybe I don't even want to be part of this church. That's ridiculous. But that's reality. Do not quarrel on the way. So they return home. They tell their father, I can't imagine this. Joseph's alive, Dad. And he's ruling over all of Egypt. Verse 26 is a proper response. His heart became numb. He did not believe them. It literally says his heart stopped. He faints. He's stunned. He's dazed. One commentator tried to say he had a literal heart attack. I don't think you can read that much into it. He is stunned. He's speechless. Now, think about this. He believed their lie 22 years ago about Joseph. He doesn't believe him now. He doesn't believe the truth that he is alive, that he is reigning. He can't absorb all this. So they tell him all the words that Joseph spoke here, reminding him again of what? God's revelation years ago. 
So he hears the words that Joseph spoke to him. He sees then the wagons, so the wagons are going to prove something. Here's a little validation to this grand story. Where did all these wagons come from? Common men didn't have these kind of wagons. And then he could have said, oh, yes, this sounds like my boy Joseph. So we're told here that Jacob's spirit was revived once he believed the report of his sons. Verse 27, Jacob has lived as a dead man for decades, beloved. Dead inside. Knowing that Joseph is alive revives him. And notice, then we're told, notice the text. Israel, not Jacob, but Israel, that's Jacob's covenant name. The covenant name God gave him. He says this, it is enough. It's enough. My son Joseph is alive. I will go see him before I die. This is a huge step of faith being exercised by this man, friends. This is a big deal. Not to be underestimated. Jacob is a very old man. I think he's 110, I think. He's being asked to leave what? What's he being asked to leave, beloved? The land of promise. Thank you, Bible students knowing he'll never return again. And we'll get more into that next week. Verse 28, Israel said, it is enough. You can imagine the emotion. That almost makes me emotional, almost. (laughs) Joseph, my son, is still alive. I'll go see him before I die. What a beautiful picture of reconciliation, beloved. Reconciliation, by the way, reconciliation with Almighty God is possible only where there's true repentance that receives the outstretched hand of God's grace. Forgiveness. You get that? Now notice as I close. Some parallels between Joseph and Jesus. And the salvation of these brothers. Verse 28. I'm sorry. Chapter 42. Verse 8. You you don't have to go there. You just mark this stuff down in your mind. Joseph recognizes his brothers. But they don't recognize him. As fallen sinners. We fail to know. And we fail to recognize our creator. And Jesus, the only Redeemer. What does Isaiah say back in chapter 1? The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. When Jesus came to this earth in John chapter 1, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Because we hate him. Because he's holy and we're sinners. We hate him. Long before Jeremiah knew God, long before Jeremiah knew God's call on his life, God said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Beautiful. In other words, Jesus knows you deeply. He knows you profoundly. The psalmist acknowledges this. He says, you know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts 
from afar off, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Nowhere, baby. He's omnipresent. You can run, but you can't hide. And those of you that have tried to run and couldn't hide, he found you, and now you're his. He knew you before you knew him. The brothers knew they were guilty. Remember, they were speaking to one another. The blood of our brother is upon us. We're going to die. This guy's going to kill us. Thinking no one else knew their sinful secret. Joseph knew it. He was standing right there. He could hear him talking. God knows every intimate detail about you. Past, present, future. Period. He knows all of your manipulative tactics. In your head alone. Only a fool thinks he can fool God. Jesus knows the intimate details. There's no secrets. So he, he, he works here to expose sin. Joseph was functioning to expose their sin. That's love. Why? Why does God do it to you? In order that you might repent and believe and receive his forgiveness so that you no longer remain on the path leading to hell. That's grace. Amen? That's grace. Because sin will be exposed. If sin, your sin, is not exposed here in the form of salvation, in what Christ did to pay for you, it will be exposed under his perfect judgment on the last day, if you're not in Christ this morning. If you're in Christ, your sin has been exposed, and he absorbed it on the cross. If you're not in Christ, and you remain outside of Christ, it will be exposed to your eternal punishment and torment on the last day. See, God's word powerful, isn't it? God's word exposes his glory and his holiness and our sin. You know how many times I've heard stories, people come in here, people invite people to come, and then on the way out they go, why did you tell them about me? I don't even know that person from Adam. Why did you tell him about my life? He was looking right at me. I don't know you. This is the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And the Holy Spirit comes, he takes his word and he pierces people's souls. And he saves those he's seeking. Those he knows long before they know him. Another parallel. Joseph loved his brothers when they hated him. They hated him at first, obviously, conspiring how to get rid of him long ago. And now, supposing him to be dead, now they stand before him, unaware that it's him. This is a trippy story. You can't make this up. You can't make this stuff up. Remember, at first, he treats them harshly. Out of love, he places heavy demands on them to test their hearts. Again, it would have been loveless to ignore them and allow them to continue in their godless ways and then perish in hell. Out of compassion, he weeps for them. 
Hey, listen, I'm, I'm getting ready to wrap up, but listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon who preached this text and, and he gleans and shares some insights from the great Jonathan Edwards. Listen to this. Quote, to the awakened sinner, this is a part of his misery that he's entirely in the hands of the very Christ whom he once despised. For that Christ who died has now become the judge of the quick and the dead. He has power over all flesh that he may give eternal life to as many as his father has given him. The father judges no man. He's committed all judgment to the son. Do you see this sinner? Do you see this? He whom you despised has you absolutely at his will. He has but to will it and the breath is gone from your nostrils. And while yet in thy seat you are a corpse. Oh, what an awful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Or even our God is a consuming fire. End quote. Perhaps you see him today for the first time. Perhaps you see him today as your salvation for the very first time. Perhaps today you're awakened to the reality of your sin. You've sinned against God. You realize you must repent before you can begin to trust Christ for salvation. And then you'll realize it's the salvation he grants to you according to his grace, having loved you long before you ever loved him. Next. Joseph had spared, that is, Joseph saved his brothers before they were aware of their salvation. Convicted? Yes. Awakened indeed. Sorrowful? Oh, you bet. Repentant? Yes. And then it's been revealed that they're saved. Spared. Having been loved first, the hated one, the one that they hated, has shown them grace. And their hearts have been transformed. So as the prince of Egypt, he saved them before they were conscious of their salvation. When he first laid his eyes on them, he was wanting to reconcile with them, beloved. Amen? That's the prince of Egypt. The one greater than Joseph, the prince of peace, saves sinners before they're conscious of their salvation. Is that you? One last parallel. Joseph says to his brothers, get this. He just lays this on him. I'm Joseph, the one you sold him. Come near to me. Come near to me, please. He didn't say, please come near to me. No, come near to me, please. He called them to himself when they might have preferred to run. You know how many times I've heard people say, I witnessed to these old guys, at the, these senior guys at the gym. I go there once a week, and I see all these older guys, you know, because it's Monday morning, and all the big hot shots come in in the evening, so it's just us older dudes, you know, and no tank tops and, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> I get to talking to some of these old fellows I've known for some time. For 10 years, I've been witnessing to some of these guys. And you know, some of them, when I talk about the gospel in Christ and that hell is real and there's only one way to salvation is Jesus Christ, faith in him alone. You know, they say, well, you know, how's that church going every time they see me? How's that church going? He says, you know, if I ever shadow the door of that church, the walls might fall in. You know, how many times I hear that? That's this. 
come near to me. They go, no way, I'm out of here. Joseph called them into a private chamber. Come. Come here. You know all these big evangelical rock bands and all these altar calls. Jesus called publicly all these sinners, and I'm calling you publicly right now. Raise that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. You know what? Let's look at the Bible. His true call is a call into the quiet chamber of the heart. I'm calling you. This message is for you. Come to me. Come near to me. Birthed out of love for you. So Joseph calls them in a private chamber, ordering the attendants out. I just need your undivided attention. You're not going to die. I'm Joseph. Jesus says, I'm Jesus. I'm the Savior. I'm the only Savior. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they what? They follow me. Those who are his come and they follow. Are you his? Is that you? Respond to the call and know what true reconciliation is. Salvation. For in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. If you don't know him, today's the day. Come to him. Believe. Trust. You shall be saved. If you're in him, rejoice that you're reconciled to him.